Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Riesmandel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, and it's it's sad business to love radio sometimes <laughs> because uh, because it's getting hard. I mean, it. This, we're talking. There are many about, threats. Yes, <laughs> there are many threats out there, right? And especially threats to the kind of radio that inspires so much passion in us, and we. We suspect it inspires passion in you, whether you're listening to us as a podcast or you're listening on your local community radio station, because you you clearly are into some radio and sound that is off the beaten path that doesn't sound like your homogenized, consolidated, uh, no local talent, commercial radio, or even a lot of homogenized public radio, you're into something different. And yet... There's this constant threat, as we've talked here, in the, especially even the last couple of weeks, to efforts to further consolidate, or you know that that or their efforts, or or there's current conditions that keep yeah, well, uh, ownership from being more diversified, the, especially for women and minorities. The world that we get, the world that we have, that allowed for some good things to be on the radio was was created and generated by certain. Uh, Rules being in place. It was done on purpose. Lifted. Yeah. Let, let, let's make this things, very clear. Things it were just nice. Doesn't um, happen. Yeah. Things were nice because they were built to be nice. And people fought for and it. And the dismantling of the nice things that we had uh, is is the media environment that we've been living in for the last 30 years. And people have fought for that. Yeah. And so the FCC was back in court recently in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Pennsylvania defending itself yet again to From- try and justify both rules that it wants to put in place to deregulate our media environment. To allow for more, for fewer companies to own more of the media again and and again and again. And moreover, to also justifying the fact that right now, arguably fewer women or minorities own Mm. broadcast stations than they did uh, prior to 1996 and having to defend themselves to the court, to the the FCC defending itself to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, why that is, or or, or really to to prove one way or another that is or is not the case, and why it is, and what they're yeah. going to do to fix it. And we're very lucky here on Radio Survivor to be able to pick up the phone and call our guest, uh, Doctor Christopher Terry, who follows these court proceedings in the minutia almost more closely then, than anyone, and then is the translator for us because uh, because you wouldn't want to be there. It, being able to actually follow the bouncing ball is what Christopher does for us and then and then brings those stories back to these airwaves uh, to let you know that what's going on in our media landscape and who wants to make changes and what would those changes be like and what arguments are they making in court to get that work done. That's, that's all what's coming up today on our interview with Christopher Terry. Professor Christopher Terry, uh, the FCC was recently in court again facing the protagonists, the plaintiffs, Prometheus Radio Project and others, they're the lead plaintiff, over media ownership rules. It's it's the uh it's the play, it's the movie, it's the plot that never ends. What happened in court? <laughs> Did anything happen in court? Well, as you've said, we've been down this road before, and this time looks a lot like the last time, which looked a lot like the time before that, and looked an awful lot like the time before that. So the main takeaway this time is that the Third Circuit's had just about enough of the FCC on this issue. 
But the most important takeaway, perhaps, is the idea that everybody knows that the last media ownership rules are going to come under some sort of remand. The plaintiffs uh, led by Prometheus are still the plaintiffs in this case because of a standing remand from earlier on. But unlike what happened in the third go-round, which happened in April of 2016, some of the industry people were actually on the FCC's side this go-round. And the industry people have sort of come to the conclusion that it was going to be a remand, and they basically asked the Third Circuit to keep that remand relatively narrow so as not to draw this process out. And by remand, and I think, what you mean is that the F, that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Pennsylvania would send the FCC's proposed ownership rules back to the commission with instructions, correct? That's basically what a remand means. Yeah, remand means go do your homework again, <laughs> sort of a redo over. Right. It means that the rule is invalid and that uh, – the agency itself, the administrative agency, has to go back and try again. And and there's lots of and you said lots that, of reasons go for ahead, a remand. Mm-hmm. A rule can be illegal, it can be arbitrary and capricious, it can be unsupported, or it can be outside of the agency's jurisdiction. What we're really talking about here, and we have been talking about this since 2004 now, is that the FCC doesn't have evidence that this policy works in the way that the FCC says it does. And we're still having that conversation now, 15 years later. And so you said the industry sort of, and by the industry, you mean sort of the, the, the commercial media industry, correct? They're the ones who are sort of uh, just sort of accepting the fact they see the writing on the wall that the third circuit is likely to remand this back to the FCC. Yeah, what they were asking for this time was instead of a full remand, um, a narrow remand on parts of the order that would allow other parts of the order to go go into effect. Now, it's not 100% true, but it's about 90% true that the FCC has completely lost every time it's gone to court here. And uh, in each case, the Third Circuit has remanded the order back to the FCC. What the industry people were asking for, essentially at the end of the oral argument, was an opportunity for some new rules to go in place while some get remanded to the commission. And that's sort of an interesting position for the industry people to take with the idea that they really liked what Pi's FCC came out with in November of 2017. And, but they, they sort of saw the writing on the wall that the FCC still hasn't resolved this minority ownership issue, that the FCC still hasn't resolved some of these evidence issues and that the FCC seems entirely reluctant to do anything about that. That's an argument we've seen now four times in court. The industry lawyer, who was very much on the side of the FCC in this case, spent the bulk of her time just saying, you know, if there's a way that you can narrow the remand, um, that would be appreciated. And so I think that speaks volumes. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about the way they want to split that baby. Um, what rules was is the media industry willing to have remanded to be sent back to the FCC for additional homework? And what rules were they asking to be preserved to to not go under the knife? 
Well, some of the changes are on the television ownership side. Okay. Uh, a lot of those rules were initially put into place to sort of facilitate the Sinclair merger uh, during 2017. But that, uh, you know, that merger fell apart. But there's some caps, uh, the 39% ownership cap, the, the JSA, the Joint Service Agreement cap. So there were rules dealing with caps that the FCC has rescinded this go-round that it would very much like to see, uh, the industry would very much like to see on the books. But the big battle, and the battle that's been in effect for the last eight years, is over media ownership policy dealing with minorities and women. In 2011, the court remanded the FCC's 2008 decision which was designed to create a policy that enhanced ownership opportunities for women and minorities. It was a disaster. And the court basically told the FCC at that point, you can't make any further changes in media ownership policy, any substantive changes anyway, until you resolve this longstanding issue. The FCC tried to do that in August of 2018 with a program they're calling the Incubator Program program looks to be arbitrary and capricious on its face. And certainly the oral argument reflected that that's probably the feeling of the Third Circuit. Let's dig into that a little bit. So the incubator program that debuted last fall, the fall of 2018, or at least was announced, is this this uh, endeavor where the FCC is going to try to um, encourage more women and minorities to to have ownership stakes in, in broadcast stations. Um, why is that arbitrary and capricious? On the face, it sounds great, right? It sounds like, oh, this is great. It, you hear about you hear about startup incubators. You hear about incubators of all sorts. It's a very kind of hot idea. Why is this arbitrary and capricious? Well, the FCC's incubator proposal is arbitrary and capricious, at least in my opinion, in two ways. Number one, it allows uh, ownership. If a group does an incubation of a station, it allows ownership limits in return that exceed the caps that Congress set for the FCC. The FCC doesn't have jurisdiction to do so that. So let, let, let's pull this apart. So when you say a group does incubation, who, who's a group that would do incubation? So you take a group like iHeartMedia. Okay. They would a large media company a, would be such a group. Right. They spin a station off uh, in a smaller market uh, to a incubator setup. And in return, they're a lot, they're given a waiver sort of a buy a ticket sort of approach that allows them to consolidate above the legal limit in a different market. And this is a significant part of the oral argument is that all these station groups are going to have the incentive to just say they spun a station off in a small market that they can consolidate uh, another station above the legal limit in a larger market. I see. And, and so by incubate, it basically, and so by incubate, you're basically saying that they would invite in a minority or women-owned company to take over a station, uh, any station, but as you mentioned, probably in a in a small market somewhere. Um, and in is the quid pro quo, the FCC would give them. Uh, get out of jail free card for all intents and purposes on on being able to exceed an, an existing ownership cap somewhere else. That's the 
that's the prevailing theory. That's what lots of people, including myself, have criticized the incubator program on is that it doesn't have that safeguard in it. And that was clearly by design. But importantly, you said something that's only partially true. There's no provision in the incubator program that actually guarantees those stations will go to women or minorities. It only has to go to a small business entity, essentially a startup. There's no provision that says that station has to go to a women or minority. Like the eligible entity program the FCC tried to pass off in 2011 and then a revised version of it in 2016, what the program does is basically hope that women and minorities will be the people who get those stations. So that's the other reason that I think the idea that this is a minority ownership program, or at least policy, is fairly arbitrary and capricious because it doesn't actually do anything to guarantee that the stations go to minority groups. I'm a large white male. I could do a startup. A station could be incubated to me. And then as a small entity, um, I could promise all sorts of programming. And then the station group could get the waiver for a much larger programming. And then when I fail a year later, I could sell the station back to the group you know, in sort of a wink, wink, nod, nod kind of deal. And that would be okay under the incubator program. And most importantly, that doesn't resolve what the FCC was told to solve with the minority ownership programming, ensuring that women and minorities get above the very fractional level of station ownership that they have today. So that we have this outstanding issue of the FCC failing to correct for the fact that women and minorities have a very, very tiny ownership stake in U.S. broadcast media. And they were, you know, the FCC was in front of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals recently defending uh, this uh, incubator program that we just, that you just uh, sort of disassembled for us. Um, what else, what else is left there? What, <laughs> see, the funny thing here, Chris, is always that we're sitting here and the fact is, it seems like nothing happens, which is obviously the case, but there's a lot of a lot of things happen while nothing happens, right? The FCC is in court. Uh, and, and what I'm presuming is that the that the court is still yet to release its decision, right? That that FCC had to stay in court along with Prometheus Radio Project with and, and its other co plaintiffs as well as other interested parties, but we're waiting for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals to speak. Yes. Now, to be fair, last time in April of 2016, they spoke very quickly. The court spoke very quickly after the oral argument. It's hard to know um, how these things are going to go. Against the backdrop, though, the FCC is engaged in its 2018 rulemaking review. And that actually came up as part of the discussion. And it's not hard to see how the court might say to the FCC, here's a remand. You're already in the process of reviewing these rules. But we want this resolved before 2018's ownership review is up. And that would at least buy the FCC three more years to do anything about it, um, which is what the FCC has essentially done up until this point. And that's try to kick the ball down the field a little bit further and hope that everything will work out. But it hasn't worked out. But what's interesting about what happened at oral argument is that the Third Circuit is very skeptical of the FCC's premise at this point. The FCC has argued for going on nine years that it is very hard to do the work the court is asking it to do. 
and that's provide an assessment of minority and women ownership today, but also compare that to what women and minority ownership looked like before 1996. Now, there is a long section of the oral argument that dealt with this issue. The FCC's lawyer uh, argued that the Prometheus group was essentially fighting all the media ownership rules to their own benefit and that the court really needed to consider the commission's benefit on this. But the court was real skeptical of that and at one point suggested that the to look the other way on the FCC's work on this point, that the Third Circuit would basically be flunking Statistics 101, was mm-hmm. actually the quote. And that's a really interesting point of view because what the court is really saying there to the FCC is, you have not done your homework. We have asked you not once, not twice, but three times to go do your homework, and you don't want to do it. And you've been whining about how hard your homework is. But this time, what the FCC said is, we don't think we could actually do it, even if you ordered us to do so. And that's a new position for the FCC, to assess what ownership looked like in, in 1996. They referred to it as a forensic analysis of ownership uh, status in 1996. And the court was very skeptical of the FCC's position here. They were like, how can you not do this? And it really comes down to the fact that the FCC doesn't want to do this. And there's only one possible explanation for that, other than the FCC being lazy, is that the FCC already knows what it's going to find, and it's not good. And there's plenty of precedent for the FCC covering up bad results in terms of media ownership policy. The FCC's done that already when they lost studies back in 2003 that showed that the policy was having the opposite absolute effect that it was intended to have. So you have a really interesting situation. You have the FCC saying, we can't possibly do the work we're actually empowered to do because it would be hard and we're not sure what we would find or if we could even accomplish it. And I've been thinking about this since the oral argument last week, and I honestly can't put my head around why the FCC doesn't think it could do that work. The only answer I can come up with is they don't want to because they're afraid of what they're going to find. It's a it's a really remarkable situation, uh, Christopher Terry, because you just in order to explain a, a complex uh, a complex world, you reduce the FCC to a whiny fourth grader, <laughs> and and that was necessary to tell a story. But it's not it's not a person. It's a it's a huge you know, governmental entity, right? Like, and it's also been run by numerous, um, heads since the, since 1996. And I just find it, uh, I, I, can you, can you make that story a little more complex as well for the listeners? Or is that, is that, uh, too much to ask that how has the FCC over the years dealt with this challenge? Has, have the different heads and, and who it's, it's, are there anybody – is there anyone left who works at the FCC who uh, would be willing to rise to the challenge if uh, if the current chair, right, uh, who, who I'm assuming has, like, hiring and firing capabilities? Like, what, what has happened to this to this large bureaucracy that, um, that it's been reduced to a metaphor of a whiny third grader by people who are paying attention? Well, remember that the metaphor is not that out of place. No, the, it's, it was a great metaphor. I loved it. 
the Third Circuit told the FCC in 2011 to shut up and stop whining. I mean, they, they basically said that in oral argument, and they basically said it in the decision that came out in 2011, that the FCC can't just continue to delay these processes by just ignoring the problem. Unfortunately, that's actually what's happened with the FCC is they have ignored the problem. And that's why I think they're like a whining teenager, right? Their homework's hard. They don't want to do it. I mean, it would be a significant contribution of man hours. I'm not I'm not in any, any illusion that it could be done, but it could be done externally if they hired people to do it. If they don't want to dedicate the man hours, they could make some grant money available and any number of researchers could do this work. It would be I mean, it would be painstaking records search, but it could be done. I did something similar when I did my dissertation research on media ownership. I spent a great deal of time in the library and at the archives at College Park going through dockets. That's exactly what would have to do be done. Yeah, if it people can if be people done. like if I if I might I, I hate to dive into presidential politics by accident, but I was like thinking about when Elizabeth Warren ran a bureaucracy and, and you used the word man hour, so I'll use Elizabeth Warren as the example. Like this is a manager who would get it done. There's, there's obviously people yeah. in the on the earth who who could who can get their work done uh, when given a tough assignment. Well, and there's precedent. Like if we just look in the world of radio, okay. If we go back to the beginnings of low power FM, when uh, the National Association of Broadcasters and NPR went to Congress, whining that small low power FM stations would cause interference to full power stations and convince Congress to cut back this, to, to increase the spacing, to make low power FMs uh, obey the same spacing requirements as 10,000 and 20,000 watt stations. One thing that Congress did was demand that the FCC do an actual scientific study of that claim. And the FCC outsourced it to the Rand Corporation. And lo and behold, when the study came back, it said, well, no, low power FMs are not going to cause uh, undue interference with low, full power stations. It took uh, then, you know, well on a decade or more before uh, Congress could then be moved to act on that information. But but I think the point stands that as as you as you mentioned, Chris, that the FCC can outsource. It has contractors. There there are people who can do this work. It's important in 2019, despite how everything feels and looks, to uh, to expect adult behavior from adult bureaucracies, it's not too much to ask to do a little bit of work. Uh, we, You're you talking have... about a bureaucracy that's led by a guy who did a Harlem Shake video to rub <laughs> a decision he made in the face of his opponents. So the, the Harlem Shake video uh, oh, about uh, network neutrality, <laughs> correct? Jeez, Louise. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's dated really well. A lot more uh, you're giving the FCC way more credit than it deserves here, guys. Right, but and, uh, it's obviously also not – it's not F- – it, I mean, Ajit Pai might make a video, but he's – Ajit Pai is not the entire – does he tell everyone to No, but to he gets to hands? make the decisions, yeah. right? He and the majority make the decisions on what kind of work they're going to do. Yeah. My suspicion is, is that they probably already did this work. They certainly had the 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 pressure on them to accomplish it ahead of the release of the incubator program. But I think they're so terrified of what they found that, you know, they've done everything they can to avoid having to talk about having to either a do it or B uh, release the numbers. And there's plenty of precedent at the FCC on media ownership policy for the FCC to cover up bad news. So, 
Christopher I Terry, mean, uh, you're, you are a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about um, the FCC's day in court yet again with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals defending media ownership rules and in particular having to defend its, its record of inaction with regard to minority and women ownership in, in with broadcast with regard to broadcasting and, and this is uh, all because in 1996 when they weakened ownership rules and allowed for fewer companies to own more stations around the country one of the bad things that happened from our point of view is that uh, it further weakened minority ownership yeah uh, radio stations across the country got more homogenous and and uh, just less less nice to listen to and, and, and you're guessing Chris that um, the FCC, which is claiming in court that it can't do the research to to compare minority ownership in 2019 versus minority ownership prior to 1996. The Middle Ages versus the modern age. Yeah, you're sort of guessing that perhaps they already have done some of that research, already know what those results would be. I don't mean to beg the question, but what do you imagine the results would be? Well, it's it's clear that um, smaller groups, mom and pop stations, things like that. There's a lot less of those now than there was in 1995. And it's entirely logical to assume that African-American stations, which are fairly limited and stations that were being operated at least 50% by women aren't there anymore. I mean, you can't consolidate the industry by more than 35% and not cut some of those people out of the loop. There weren't any places for those stations to come from other than from those places. Yeah. So, you know, whatever the number is, whether it's 10% or 15% or 20% reduction, it doesn't matter. What really matters is the number that we have now, and that's 7%. That's what we're talking about. Women control around 7% of the broadcast stations in the United States. African-Americans' number is far less than that. You're talking about fractions of the overall media sphere are controlled by the groups, the court says the FCC has to find ways to get stations in, into the hands of. The FCC has done everything it can, going on 11 years now, to avoid having to do this. And they're afraid that the court will put together a, if they come up with some sort of policy that favors women or favors racial or ethnic minorities, that the court, especially the Supreme Court, would reject that policy um, under strict scrutiny. And I don't see any precedent for that. Uh, the Adiran decision, which uh, covers that, it's a construction decision dealing with employment rules. Uh, it, it doesn't cover broadcasting, which isn't treated by strict scrutiny. And the FCC clearly knows this. And that's indicative of what we've seen from the FCC when they've gone to court with Prometheus over the years here. I mean, this is this was the fourth time the FCC's been in court, but this is actually the fifth case when Tom Wheeler's FCC released a media ownership decision in August of 2016. Prometheus filed against the FCC in that case as well, but Ajit Pai changed the rules in November of 2017 before that case could even go to trial and that case was then wrapped up into this case. And that's sort of the shift between the, the two administrations from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Right. And the logic that was argued by the FCC in 2016 was pretty bad, but it was the argument that the FCC was trying to make about how they shouldn't change any media ownership policies, period, end of story. 
that exact argument was completely turned 180 degrees around, not 20 months later in November of 2017. It's entirely ideological. So the FCC can't even agree with itself at this point. And that weighs very heavily towards the Third Circuit taking a grim view of this. Now, I went into this case, and I was very nervous ahead of oral argument. If you go back and listen to some of the other shows we've done on this issue, um, you'll remember from a while back, I was very concerned in 2016 that if the FCC had to go back to court on this, that the Third Circuit was going to burn the FCC out. Um, they, the metaphor the court used in the 2016 decision was essentially burning down the house to kill the pig. Wow. And that's, uh, I was afraid that that might be the result here. I think it'll be far more narrow and essentially send a good chunk of this back to the FCC to do its work again. And by burning down the house, you you mean you you're, one of your concerns was that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals would just simply say throw out all media ownership rules and just say start over from scratch. It's all right. it's all just okay. tinder, and we're going to light it on fire. Well, I mean the the irony, not the irony, the reality of media ownership policy is that it's governed by a very obscure section of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. That's section 202H. You've heard me use that phrase before if you've listened to the show when I've been on. But 202H does something that's basically unique in administrative law. It requires that an agency, if they even want to retain a rule, periodically they have to come up with evidence that the rule actually works as if the rule were going to be a new rule. So anytime an administrative agency comes up with a rule, regulation, they have to have evidence to support why they're doing it the way that they do. But once the regulation's on the books and has been tested in court, it's usually safe until it gets changed. That's not how media ownership policy was designed in the Telecommunications Act. Instead, the FCC has to go to bat for the rules it wants to keep as if they're new rules. And this has created the evidence problem, which I've talked about many times when I've been on the show. When it comes to media ownership, the FCC, even if they like a rule, right, even if they, there's a rule they want to keep, and right now they're fighting a little bit over the local radio ownership rule, they, even if they want to keep that rule, they have to defend that rule as if it's new. And that means they have to have evidence that it works. They can't even come up with that evidence mm. at this point and have been very reluctant to do so. Um, Jacob Lewis, who was the FCC's lead attorney at oral argument, he, he basically told the panel that it was only 2019 and that they hadn't had time to do this. Well, we're talking about 23 years into the process. To the FCC's credit and to in defense of the FCC, which you don't, if you've listened to me, you know I don't take this position very often. The FCC did it wrong in 1996. They needed to assess media ownership before they made these rule changes. They didn't do that, and that set them back on this process the entire time. But it is so bad that the FCC lawyer who was arguing about the evidence issue conflated 202H's rules with those that govern the uh, way administrative law works in the APA. And the, the Third Circuit wasn't buying it at all. I mean, he just absolutely told... What was, I don't want to accuse him of a complete fabrication. That's not accurate. But it, it, it conflated two things that aren't the same. And 
you know, that it speaks volumes that we're still having the same conversation. The FCC cannot defend what it has done for 20 years on media ownership policy because it's basically a failure. Don't take my word for it, right? Look at the companies that media ownership policy in this country has created over the last 20 years. Anybody remember Clear Channel Communications? Remember when they were the biggest thing since sliced bread? They've been in and out of bankruptcy. They had to sell off a whole bunch of stations, and now they're a different company. They're still not making it, right? That's what media ownership policy in this country created, and that's the legacy that we're dealing with. And it is a legacy of failure, as I have said many times, because the FCC cannot defend its actions. And that is the voice of Professor Christopher Terry, a professor of media law at the University of Minnesota. He's a frequent guest here on Radio Survivor to help us stay up to date with what's going on with media ownership, which which does greatly affect what we hear on our radio dial, what yeah. we see on television and elsewhere. Even even small stations that air Radio Survivor uh, swim in the same, same in the waters yeah. and, and are, you know, the... The ways that they sound in, in 2019 have a lot to do with how how everybody else in the media landscape um, are dealing with these pressures that are created by by these fascinating policy decisions from our past. And that's the voice of Eric Klein, my co-host, and I'm Paul Reismandel. And, you know, so Christopher Terry, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking with Kevin Erickson from the Future of Music Coalition about a campaign that his organization is uh, co-organizing along with uh, the Music First Coalition called Keep Local Radio Local, and they're responding to a National Association of Broadcasters proposal submitted to the FCC. So uh, to translate Paul, what Paul just said, it sounds like uh, music industry folks, you know, people that represent the songwriters and the bands, want to keep... don't want to don't Keep want the way they are. Don't want to relax the ownership rules so much that uh, that radio yeah. stations get more right. Get they don't want to relax difference. it anymore. But they're reacting to uh, to a very specific yeah. uh, proposal, one that that we've talked about before, um, that would completely eliminate local radio ownership caps for all of the small markets, everything below number seventy five yeah. in the and Nielsen ratings, it, and it, and in greatly. Uh, loosen them for all the stations above 75 and above it was really a remarkable episode of radio survivor because i went back and listened to it again and i kept thinking like maybe we're not maybe we're underselling this these are these are incredible changes that would like you know that in in a city like el paso texas one entity could own everything everything and that's a new world you know we think things are bad enough but that's a different level of yeah, Dumb. and so with the FCC caught up in court over previous ownership rules, right, that it's trying to rewrite, which is supposed to do every review every two years. Um, four. Every four, I'm four sorry. Years. It used to be biennial. <laughs> now it's yeah. quadrennial. Um, with that how happening and in this other proposal, I mean, what what are the chances that that proposal to comp- pretty much blow up nearly any ownership regulation that exists in broadcast radio how likely is that to happen what what are our chances how worried should we be well i think it depends on your point of view on this one um i've been asked about this a couple of times here's what i think number one i think if this fcc could do it they would and i think they'll at least pitch it as an idea as part of the 2018 rule review 
The problem is, is that the current limits that exist, including the local radio rule and including the market specific rule, come to us from Congress. The FCC has limited authority to overturn those rules. 202H does give them some authority to do away with rules that are no longer in the public interest in terms of competition. But it would be very hard to make an argument that consolidating all the stations into one entity in the bottom 150 radio markets in the United States would be good for competition. They might try. Uh, this FCC has tried a lot of stuff. I didn't really think that they would go quite that far. But I'm skeptical that even if the FCC wanted to implement that, that level of proposal, they actually have the authority to do that. Um, I think that would take an act of Congress. Now, can the NAB get Congress on board with something like that? That's a different question. But I don't believe, at least as I understand the FCC's jurisdiction, and these are things I sit around and think about all the day, um, I'm skeptical that the FCC would actually have the authority to take things that far, as much as they might like to. I don't think that they have that that power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems to me, you know, we have a split Congress with currently Republicans dominating uh, the Senate and, and Democrats dominating the House. And, you know, it, when it comes to media ownership, we should remember that in 1996, uh, it was Democratic President Bill Clinton, who signed that act, and then it was a bipartisan effort to deregulate radio as it's turned and out. It's always entirely possible to imagine a world in which some Republican senators who, you know, who would sw who would control the, the 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 swing votes in the Senate might care enough about the kinds of cities that would be impacted by these rules. Might have constituents who yeah. are calling them saying, hey, uh, wait a minute. It's not you know, a foregone conclusion. My, that my radio cluster in El Paso will be might get wiped out. Despite how U.S. politics works, Ajit Pai's party right. might not be unified on this one issue. And, and also, I mean, Music First works with all the major labels. I mean, that's not an inconsiderable amount of both of economic power there. And I imagine there, you know, the music industry might also bring some lobbying power to bear on Washington should an effort be made. Though I have a hard time imagining this Congress wanting to take up media ownership or the Telecommunications Act. Maybe Chris, you can you can correct me and tell me that I'm I'm dreaming. Well, I think there's some impetus to reconsider whether the Telecommunications Act needs an update. And not just on media ownership, there's there's a lot of ruffling in Congress right now over whether Internet platforms need to be regulated uh, for their content. That's especially true on the conservative side. They don't like that conservatives are pushed off of certain types of media. Um, Section 230 is clearly under attack. That's a provision that provides immunity to Internet platforms for the content that you and I and everybody else posts on that content. That's a there's a growing movement to do that. And that's part of the Telecommunications Act. Um, there's a there's always the lobby out there that wants to keep us from hearing about sex and drugs and rock and roll. And they would uh, very much like to see some form of new form of indecency rules applied, certainly some sort of zoning of Internet content of an adult nature. So while I don't think media ownership itself uh, has the momentum in Congress, if uh, Congress got to a point to where it felt like it needed some sort of win 
and they thought that they could do an update to the Telecommunications Act, that would be sort of a bipartisan thing you could get a lot of support for. Then I would be concerned that that kind of rule review, the kind of thing that the NAB is asking the FCC for right now might be included in a bill like that. And so while I don't think it's likely, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And so for people who care about such things, it's a matter that um, it might be in their best interest not only to submit their comments to the FCC, but also to uh, alert their uh, elected congressional representatives, their senators and their House representatives. Well, we're kind of in the infancy of these things um, right now, but uh, keeping staying vigilant on this is certainly what's helped keep it in the status quo that it's in now, which is much better than it could have been had the court not intervened back in 2004. I mean, they basically stalled this process out and that's resolved a lot. What we're really seeing at the FCC now is a focus on mega mergers, um, things like the Sprint T-Mobile merger, the earlier mergers uh, with Sinclair and Tribune, the attempt to absorb Tribune's television stations by another company, FCC is more highly focused on big, large-scale type of mergers like that right now. But if they thought they could get a rule through and it would withstand judicial scrutiny that would help um, broadcasters at the local level to do consolidation, getting rid of the top two provision, where you can't have the top two rated television stations in a market and the same thing, getting rid of some of the duopoly rules. The FCC has been trying to get rid of the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule for going on 15 years. If the FCC thought they could get some of those things on the books, they wouldn't be so splashy as a Sinclair Tribune merger, perhaps, but they would be they would have more dramatic effects on the type of programming content and specifically diversity that would be available. Professor Terry, uh, you mentioned the Sprint T-Mobile merger, which would be a merger of, I think, are they like the number three and number four? Uh, wireless uh, internet providers and communications providers in the U.S. Is that correct? Is that my uh, yes. getting that right? Um, what's your take on that? Um, <laughs> Should we be worried? Really, I think it's a. I mean, I understand the business arguments for the merger, but I think it's a really bad idea to remove the number of national carriers from four to three. When you reduce that you're reducing competition and you're giving them an opportunity to uh, collude on pricing. And certainly there will be very few consumer benefits to this. The FCC is justifying the idea of the merger on the idea that Sprint and T-Mobile will be able to combine the resources and more quickly deploy 5G uh, technology. But there appears to be very little evidence that that's actually true other than sort of in the unicorns and rainbows mythical belief system that the FCC seems to employ more often these days than ever. And, and, and 5G for folks who don't really know what that is? It's fifth generation mobile technology. Okay. So basically faster internet to our phones and mobile devices. Well, that's the theory, but it's actually slower than third generation. Currently. <laughs> that's, so, a, that's another episode. And that's only in the places where it's actually available. So, And if six were nine, and what a, what about on on uh, episodes of episodes of Radio Survivor in the past year? We've talked about five G because some municipalities were using a rule that the FCC had control over to um, essentially 
to to ask for a tax back from these service providers and they would use that money yeah because they were putting their cell the cells the actual equipment yeah. themselves every, up on on uh, utility poles so in you know in specifics the 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 community of San Jose every time one of these fancy new 5G cell towers would go up on a block and there'd be one a block to get it to work they could ask for a certain amount of money and then use that money to provide uh, internet services for poor people stuff like that um and that rule was under attack. We talked about it on an episode of Radio Survivor. Do you know anything about where – And which would also put um, – the reason we ended up – the reason we talked about it on Radio Survivor was because it was the same rule that allowed cities to, uh, to get cable companies to fund public access television stations back in the 80s. And all of that was um, at risk. I guess, you know, we might have talked about it before – 2019 that might have been a 2018 episode of radio survivor um christopher terry you know what the status is of that of that situation they're still arguing about it the issue of peg fees is going to be a big deal at the fcc sometime in the next year yeah peg Um, is a a public educational public educational government it's you know it's where our public access television stations are which um well uh don't ask me about why i love them so much i will i will fill up the rest of the episode I think the FCC got a secret win this week as we record this. The Supreme Court released a decision that says that private cable access operators are not First Amendment bound entities. They're not state actors. It won't be hard to see the FCC interpret that decision as one that uh, they can say, well, basically all public access channels are privately owned or privately operated, so they don't need peg fees. They can raise their own money. And I know uh, I was on the board of a public access channel here in Milwaukee, where I'm from, a while back. And when they lost their peg fee, they shut down almost instantly. Right, oh and the my. peg fee well, being being a line item on, on basically on a, on a cable bill. Uh, right. that, that, that by subscribing to cable, you yeah. underwrite this and. So I, I saw this Supreme Court decision go past, and I didn't dig in, although on, on first blush, I was a little little uh, disturbed by it. Um, Chris, you know, what I understand, what has been my understanding for quite some time, and maybe my understanding was wrong, was that a public access television channel was not really permitted to deny particular programming by statute. You know, they could shunt, you know, things that were clearly adult in nature to late night you know, they could and such. They could do some programming, but they couldn't uh, deny uh, yeah, no calls to action, no commercial. They couldn't deny a particular. Uh, well, not even that. No. I, oh, really? You no. Know, my understanding is that that they could not deny someone uh, based upon their content. And and this sounds like what I saw is that maybe the Supreme Court said no, they can. Well, the courts, the court kind of split the baby on this one. They said if the PEG channel is privately operated, they can, mm. that they're not bound by the First Amendment. Now, this is this is way out in the weeds, but a lot of PEG channels, a lot of public access channels were actually owned by the cable entity, which had a license from the municipality where they operated their franchise. That made those stations uh, essentially First Amendment actors. The station in this case is actually operated on behalf of the cable company by a private entity. 
And that is why there's a distinction ah. in that case. So, yes. like for instance, here in Portland, Oregon, uh, one of the uh, one of one of the peg channels is a privately uh, private nonprofit. So they're not a for-profit company, but it's a nonprofit that operates the uh, peg channel. That would be considered a private entity under this ruling. It sounds like. Yes, oh, that's no. true. <laughs> but but if it were if it were uh, in in sort of the local Comcast studios that the that Comcast were operating on behalf of the Multnomah County Cable Commission or something like that, then that would be more likely considered a state actor and therefore subject to First Amendment protections. That's my read on it. Um, <laughs> I think Justice Kavanaugh's decision has a few holes in it. Um, well, we'll have to see. I mean, the case is basically a state action doctrine, state action doctrine mm-hmm. case where for the First Amendment to apply, it has to be the government that's actually engaged in the suppression of your speech. Otherwise, you really don't have a basic First Amendment protection from sanction for your speech. Um, in the case, Manhattan Community Access Corp uh, versus Halleck, I think is the name. The, is that D.D. Halleck? The, uh, no, no. Okay. The situation is different because that person isn't a government entity. They're a private entity. And as such, they're allowed to make their own decisions. That case would not have been decided that way back in the 70s or 80s because all the public access channels that were available were operated by the cable company as part of their license. Remember the the scrolling thing with the lunch menu from schools and things right, like the, that went off with the weather running in the background. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, that's what, you know, that's where public access channels kind of come from, but the, these sort of private entity channels are sort of a new thing. You know, the cable company might be required to provide some form of public access. They don't want to pay to maintain the studio or pay somebody to, to run the station. So they'll they'll essentially hire out. I'm not exactly sure that's what happened in Manhattan Community Access. Yeah. But my read of the case is that's kind of the scenario which developed there. And then they had some issues with some of the programming. Uh, and they made a decision not to allow that programming on the air. And the decision is the court was asked to decide whether or not that was a violation of the First Amendment because it's a private entity. It's not. And it was a five to four decision, right? And I think uh, yeah, but a, a, sort of a weird coalition of five and four. And so, uh, was it uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote the uh, opposing opposing decision? Her, her dissent decision? will be the legacy of that case. Um, she she dissects many of Kavanaugh's arguments. Now, where I think this case will have legacy is that the FCC will use it to get rid of peg fees. That's certainly on the table. Yeah. And again, but, we, we uh, care about these stations because here in Radio Survivor Land, it's um, you know opportunities for 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 the for people who live in places in the United States to make media are becoming few and far between. And the crossover between peg stations that do TV and community radio um, in in the you know in the age of every all the media is the same in the first place. Um, it's it's pretty much all we have left. It's worth defending. Just on that, on those grounds alone, from in my opinion. Well, there's some really interesting speech that comes out of those public access channels. The one I was on the board for had a pet show, a gardening show, and then a 9/11 truther show, back to back on Tuesday nights. You know, that was that was it was it was pretty yeah. special. It was a little off the wall, but where I think this case might really come back up 
is in the case that we'll eventually have at the Supreme Court when Mozilla uh, v. Fire, the Firefox net neutrality decision comes up. Justice Kavanaugh is essentially setting the stage here to say that cable entities are private actors and they don't have to protect your First Amendment rights. Uh, it was an argument he tried to make in U.S. Telecom. He made it in his dissent in U.S. Telecom when he was on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, it's not hard to see him writing a similar decision when the Mozilla case makes it uh, up from the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court. I can You can almost read into what he wrote in Manhattan Community Access. And, and just real quickly, uh, just I, I know we don't have a lot of time left. The, the uh, Mozilla case, uh, what was the outcome of that? We don't have an outcome yet. What um, was the initial decision, at least, that, that, is, being, uh, that is being appealed up to the Supreme Court? Uh, well, whatever comes out of the D.C. Circuit is liable to go to the full panel of the D.C. Circuit. Okay. Whoever wins or loses, the other side will make an appeal. But what's at stake It'll here? Go, what, what, what is the uh, uh, key? Of whether the-, the FCC was allowed to change the Title II rules to the, we call it net neutrality, but it doesn't represent anything that invokes net neutrality rules uh, as it did in November of 2017. Under the Ajit Pai uh, administration. Okay. Um, the earlier case, U.S. Telecom, the uh, net neutrality rules passed by Tom Wheeler, which were Title II rules, were upheld by the D.C. Circuit. Then they were upheld on in bank, and then by the Supreme Court, they denied cert. They didn't take the case which meant that the decision at the lower court level was correct. And then when Ajit Pai and his friends lost that case, they passed the new uh, net neutrality rules, which repealed Title II. Yeah. And Basically Mozilla- did an about-face on, on net neutrality. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about that on the show. We have. I just times. wanted to make sure uh, we, we connect all the dots here. Because what, what's interesting to me in talking with you, Professor Christopher Terry, is how these things are all interconnected. We can't ownership doesn't exist in a vacuum from these, you know, first amendment cases and these cases of, um, you know, network neutrality and the ability to have kind of open speech online. Well, I mean, we're waiting on the decision in the Mozilla case. That'll be a very interesting decision when it comes down. It looked like the FCC was losing at oral argument and we might have a decision as soon as next week. It's about the amount of time the D.C. Circuit usually takes, but there is no indication one way or the other uh, when that decision will come down, where it's it's certainly hopefully imminent as we uh, get into summer here. Well, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, really appreciate you updating us about <laughs> sort of giving us, you know, laying it out and, and connecting all the dots for us on both, you know, sort of ownership rules, what could happen to our media landscape, what uh, where the FCC is in its current efforts to dismantle media ownership rules for all intents and purposes, you know, and laying out, you know, both how it's sort of become uh, a a big mud pit without much action, but also that we can't take that for granted that, that, you know, someone could throw a skid plate underneath there at any moment. And, uh, the FCC could crawl itself, pull itself all, all out, or it, it could all, be helped yeah, along by Congress. It could all, it could all go fast to stretch a metaphor to its breaking point. And, and, and what's at stake is, is the kind of, uh, the kind of radio, the kind of television, the kind of news, uh, you know, uh, environment for jobs the the amount of reporters who are covering these kinds of stories all of it is no just send them all to florida to trouble to to cover the next rally (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't help myself. Yeah. <laughs> I said that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's it's already it's that's yeah, it's not it is what it is. It is what it is. Well, <laughs> we definitely we have what we get. We're we're waiting to hear from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals about um, whether or not they will uphold or send back the FCC's decision to dismantle network neutrality. Chris, we hope you're available to help us figure that out when that I'll be around. Got the number. All right. Thanks Thanks again, Chris. Talk to you guys soon. Have a great day. Bye bye. Well, thank you, Paul, for putting that together again. And thank you, Christopher Terry, for helping us out. Again, what a we could have done two hours. We could have done two episodes. I'd like to put a note. I'd like to reserve the right someday just to talk about like what you know the, the the phrase "another world is possible." Another media landscape is possible. There's so many things that could be going right instead of going wrong. And we've we since we spent an hour talking about all the ways they can make things a little bit worse than they are, and they're not so great to begin with. It would be certainly nice to talk about. What kind of rules could be put in place? What kind of I, what kind of ways could we uh, ask for a tax on the existing profitable corporations and then spend that money on public interest media? These there's things, so much good. There's so much good that could be done. They happen by design, as we said up at the top of the show. Public access cable was not because all of a sudden the cable industry decided that would be a nice idea. Activists, <laughs> yeah. public interest advocates, motivated and activated to create it. Low power FM yeah. had to basically nearly be sort of like grabbed from the tight grasp of the commercial uh, radio industry and NPR to exist. Both, both of those groups opposed low power FM and it was dedicated activists, people who believe in having a robust diversity on the airwaves created this next wave of community radio. None of it was given. Every single one of these things was a battle fought and won. Um, meaning it can be won sometimes, but it, it isn't merely an act of resistance. It is also an act of creation. It's a creative act uh, to help motivate uh, these visions, as you say, of yeah. what can be through places like the FCC or Congress. We'd love to know what you think about that. Drop us a line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Um, we're looking to do some work to help document one of those or some of those actions and particularly action that created low power FM in 2000, which will be celebrating its 20th anniversary. Yeah. Again, uh, the next media, year, the media landscape that we have as good as it is, is because people worked hard as bad as it is, is because not enough people worked hard or, or they were overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's always a give and take. It's an organizing process that, that we would like to tell the story of because there is a story to be told about these organizing uh, uh, events that took place in the 1990s. To learn more about that effort and how you might be able to help us, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And of course, what we've talked about is that, you know, we want to illustrate this history and tell this history that we, we fear is, is might be lost or at least not really told in, in one narrative uh, because it, it was bigger than, than low power FM even because a lot of the same activists uh, had been working with indie media, had been working to create internet communications, uh, really what became social media before it was social media. Uh, it came together at the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999, which will celebrate its 20th anniversary this November. Um, 
There were people from the public access TV world, as we note. There were people from zines and from independent press and from alternative weeklies, people from community radio, people who were uh, micropower radio activists, so people who were who were creating unlicensed stations to serve their communities because they couldn't get a license because there was no such thing as low-power FM at the time, as well as hackers and other folks who were really at the forefront of internet technology when it was a radically wild idea that you might create a website where anyone one could publish anything, including audio, video, pictures, and uh, and text, and put it all together before there was a Twitter, before there was a YouTube, before there was a Facebook, before there was a Friendster, for Pete's sake, or a MySpace. <laughs> all This was all being created by grassroots activists who came from all over the world and from all of these different walks. This is a story we think needs to be told because it had a tremendous and, and earth-shattering effect on our media landscape. Uh, that's what we'd like to do. We do need your help to do this. We really need to get to 100 supporters on Patreon, 100 people saying we'll support Radio Survivor every single month so we can dig in and do this work because it's hard work. Lots of these folks are still around who were there, but you know, as the, as the clock ticks on, People get further and further away and become less and less accessible. We don't really want to let this go much further, and we think the 20th anniversary is a great time to to plant a flag in the ground and to do this work. Go to patreon.com slash radio survivor and please you know, find a way to give us something every month to do this work. We're going to make a big announcement on our next show, number 200. I mean, so many landmarks here. The 20th anniversary of the WTO this year. We're the 10th anniversary of Radio Survivor this year as a website. And, you know, we'll have our 200th episode of the podcast. We celebrate four years of creating this show and podcast, which has been out pretty much nearly every week. We've been super consistent. We're now on 24 radio stations around uh, the United States, Canada, and Ireland, as well as internet stations and Part 15 stations. Um, it's growing. And we do so because of the people who are helping to support us now, but we're spreading the word further. We want to do even more work. And we, and if you're not currently able, supporting us, we'd love for you to consider it. Even a dollar a month makes a big damn difference. Yeah. It goes very far because it allows us to predict kind of what money is coming in. It allows us then to make allocations and not think that we're just going to run down our bank account, um, whether we're sending somebody to go do some reportage, bringing on maybe some freelance help. Investing in new tools investing to in record tools, better interviews. <laughs> to be able to get around or, or, or paying to travel, etc. Yeah. All these things will help us do this work and do it better and then spread the word again to to podcast listeners as well as thousands of radio listeners um, now around the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it's, it's, it's tremendous. It's exciting. And we really appreciate your help. And, and we will have a special announcement to help give you a little bit more incentive. Uh, we'll have some special, uh, shall we say, thank you gifts yeah. that, that will be in store, uh, that we'll tell you about on our next episode, number 200, which is next week. I'm excited about 200 episodes. I'm glad that we're going to be talking with, uh, Jennifer and Matthew on yes. the podcast. All, the whole gang back together. The whole again. gang back together again. Well, on behalf of myself, Eric Klein, Paul Reismandel, thank you so much uh, for this episode of Radio Survivor. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>